Welcome to the Brian Thomas Crop Podcast. My name is Brian Thomas Crop, and I believe that stories have a tremendous power for good. And so I write them and I enjoy sharing them with you. Uh, if you are listening to this in the same moment that it gets released out into the world, it is Thanksgiving Day to, uh, 2021. So happy Thanksgiving, particularly if you live in America. I don't know other countries that share in our Thanksgiving celebration, though. I have been in other countries and one of the fascinating uh, things around this time is they want to celebrate an American style Thanksgiving. So I was in Spain one year and uh, it was a very big deal to still have the turkey and the cranberries and the mashed potatoes and all the things. It was strange because we had to bring it all over with us, but that was a request when we went over there. So who knows, at least the menu is exciting. If uh, the, the holiday itself uh, may not make as much sense, it being very American in its uh, origins, but hope you are having a, a good time with your family, or if you're listening to this after that you did have a good time with your family. Um, yeah, if you're new to the show, then I want to let you know kind of how the, the show goes. Uh, we read a little story, uh, and by that I mean a chapter out of a story that I've written. We're uh, in uh, my first novel called Showdown in the Yukon. We are 27 chapters in, so I'm going to give you a little uh, behind, like um, previously on, and then we will get into the chapter, and then after that chapter, We'll get some behind the scenes, sort of uh, what was the thinking behind the chapter or some Easter eggs that might be in there. So if you like uh, DVD extras or listening to the director's commentary on a movie, this is that kind of thing. Uh, but just where we are, Showdown in the Yukon involves a, a quartet of adventurers as um, uh, Monterey Jack Danvers, who is a uh, ex pickpocket who has decided to go straight. He's been hired by his ex-partner in crime, uh, Max Sutherland, who has also uh, gone legit with his life. And uh, they, uh, they've been hired by uh, a lady named Gladys Finch. Uh, she has a daughter and they have been ripped off. Uh, they had a property up in the Yukon territory that apparently has a very prosperous gold mine and they would like to get it back uh, and get it away from the person who stole it from them. So they've been on all kinds of other adventures. You can go back, pass through the, the other 26 chapters and kind of know what that adventure is, but it's it's been uh, quite the, uh, the white knuckle experience. And uh, now they are captured for the most part in this ranch just outside of a town called Penny Canyon. They've been trying to get to this whole time. Uh, but three of the group are locked into a barn uh, the this group of ranchers thinks they're poachers and Monterey is trying to figure out how to get them out. So that's where we find ourselves and we will get into chapter 27 of Showdown in the Yukon right after we hear from this week's sponsors. There is someone that I want you to meet and his name is Casey Jackson. If you are unfamiliar with Casey Jackson, I do have a son named Casey Jackson, but I love the name and I thought it sounded like a really good name for a spy. And so I wrote a series of four books uh, with a character named Casey Jackson. And uh, he goes to a town called Southacre, and in a four-book series, uh, he has to uncover not only a dastardly plot, but stop the villain uh, from pulling this off. It 
sounds like an adventure and it is but it's a lot of fun. It has a lot of uh, jokes and humor. It's a lot of uh, tongue in cheek, uh, but it's also a crime noir. And so if you like some of that cloak and dagger stuff, I think you're really going to enjoy Casey Jackson in South Acre. You can find the links to that in the show notes and over at amazon.com and always over there at bryanthomascrop.com. I hope you check it out. Chapter 27 Monterey was at the side of the house before he knew it. Through the window, he saw maps on the wall, a portrait photograph of a woman, and a desk with the oil lamp. On the desk, he saw a ring of keys. In one motion, he lifted the sash of the window, pushed himself up, and climbed into the room. The ring of keys was only four feet away. Monterey walked over to the desk, was inches from putting his fingers on them when he heard boots on the floor just beyond the door. At the sound of the turning doorknob, Monterey dove to hide under the desk. The door opened and two men continued their conversation. Monterey placed both hands over his mouth to conceal any sounds of his breathing, but his beating heart made this very difficult. We're almost out of water, Buck. We can't keep this up. Let's face it. We either pack up the remaining cattle and find somewhere else or... Or what? Monterey assumed this voice belonged to Buck. We let him buy us out to dig for his cursed gold. What do I know of mining? I know cattle. From the Rio Grande to Penny Canyon, that's all I've ever known. I grew this herd from six to over 3,000. Now, just because Cornelius Brown wants to destroy this whole land to line his pockets, he's ruining my business. He can dam up the river all he wants. He can charge us all kinds of money for the measly amount of water we do get, but he is not driving me off my land. With that, Buck slammed his fist on the desk, startling Monterey and rattling the ring of keys. Then we have to deal with poachers creeping out of the forest, Buck continued. I tell you, if it's not one thing, it's another. What do you want me to do with them, Buck? Said the other man. You know them hillbillies. They won't take this lightly either. We might have a bit of a skirmish on our hands. Maybe we can trade their kin for some of the cattle they've taken. There was a long silence. Monterey stopped breathing. Eventually, the one who wasn't Buck said, You want me to put them to work in the morning? That's an idea. Work them till they don't want to mess with our ranch ever again, Buck laughed without mirth. Monterey heard the ring of keys picked up off of the desk. Take these and get them out before dawn. They can shovel the manure out of the barn till they get blisters on their blisters. <laughs> you got it, boss. Monterey didn't want those keys to leave the room if he could help it. Sure, he had a lot of practice lifting objects undetected out of people's pockets, but it was a lot harder in a crowd where he wasn't supposed to be. He was already there. The keys were already there. Monterey did not want this opportunity to pass him by. As the men lined out plans for the next day, Monterey poked his head out from behind the desk and saw the ring of keys tucked in the belt of one of the men. If he pulled the ring right then, it would certainly go unnoticed. Monterey looked for a distraction. His eyes darted under the desk for anything he might use. Mostly, he saw dust. Then he spied a dirt clod on the heel of a boot. It was the size of a small rock and looked to do the trick. With his fingernail, he pried it loose. It was as hard as a rock. Monterey palmed the clod. It seemed to have a good weight to it. He prayed it would do its job as he fixed his gaze at the window just beyond the men. He aimed and flung the clod as hard as he could. Smash! The hunk of dirt shattered the pane of glass which spooked the men. 
They turned to the window. In a flash, Monterey sprung up, snagged the keys out of the man's pocket, and slid back under the desk. What was that? Buck hollered. Probably the men getting out of hand again, said the other. Probably the hillbillies trying to get their kin. Best get back to the shed to check on them. Both men left as fast as they came in. Monterey sneaked out from behind the desk. This time, he made his way out through a window in a different room. He knew he would not have much time. It would not be long before someone inspected the window, saw the shattered glass lay outside and not inside, meaning there had been someone in the house. Once they suspected a spy on the loose, it would be hard to do anything helpful for his friends. He waited outside behind a feed trough until the activity of the cattlemen moved away from the shed. Monterey guessed it took three quarters of an hour for things to settle down enough for him to get moving. Then, tightly holding the key ring, he made his way over to the shed. Monterey wrapped the side of the shed three times and waited for the reply. Then he slid a key in the lock, and a minute later he and Max started loading the empty barrels on the back of the wagon as quickly and as silently as possible. Then Monterey led Mrs. Finch and Lucy out of the shed. Took you long enough, Mrs. Finch said. We're not out of the woods yet. I may have stirred up a nest, Monterey said. Everyone get in a barrel. How is that going to help us escape, Mrs. Finch asked. It's just a hunch, Monterey said, but it's the only plan I have. If we leave on foot, we're going to get caught. The sun comes up in a couple of hours, and we won't get far enough away. As my dearly departed mother used to say, the plan you use is better than the plan you don't, Max said and extended his hand to the ladies. Mrs. Finch, if you'll do the honor of going first. Mac helped Mrs. Finch climb into the wagon and then into one of the empty barrels. Monterey closed the padlock back on the shed door and left the keys in the lock. Lucy situated herself in her barrel by the time Monterey climbed into the wagon. So far, so good. I didn't know you had a mother, Monterey smiled to Mac as he got into his barrel. I did, he said. A saint of a woman. Taught me everything I know, he winked at Monterey. I suppose we shall see how this part of the adventure shakes out. Mac shook Monterey's hand before ducking into his barrel. Monterey took one last look around the ranch. It seemed quiet, and he hoped no one stood on guard for this next part. Then he reached down, grabbed the horse's reins, and cracked them across their backs. The wagon jerked forward, shoving Monterey awkwardly down into his barrel. The wagon continued to venture forward as if it was normal for the horses to wander off in the middle of the night. The small amount of water remaining in the bottom of his barrel flooded Monterey's pants, which was cold and uncomfortable. But he thought at least they were making a clean getaway. As the team of horses ambled along their well-worn and familiar path, Monterey kept waiting to hear the sound of calls and whistles from the ranchers or the approaching thunder of other horses, but mile after silent mile passed without incident. Still, at least as far as Monterey knew, the rest of his companions stayed hidden and quiet in their barrels. He remembered a story he had heard from time to time about an ancient army that hid inside a giant wooden horse to sneak inside the walls of an enemy city. He laughed softly to himself that they were doing the opposite, running away from their captors. The rocking of the wagon and his adrenaline working its way out of his blood dropped Monterey into a deep slumber. He dreamed he was in a large corral. Before him stood a knight clad head to toe in golden armor. The knight took many swings at Monterey with a golden sword. Weaponless, Monterey dodged and ducked and ran away as best he could, but time and again he ran into the corral's edges and tried to find another way out. Eventually the first knight became two, and then five kings coming after Monterey. He saw the corral squeeze smaller and smaller until there was almost no way to avoid the death blow from one of the golden swords. He remembered the pearl and pulled it out. 
Bright blue-white light poured from it, causing all of the knights to fall back as if their strength was gone. Monterey woke up with a start and, forgetting where he was, stood up from his barrel. The cold night air greeted him. Monterey looked up and saw the majestic arm of the Milky Way stretching across the sky. Monterey felt suddenly so small in such a big place and wondered what he had gotten himself into and how would it all turn out. Was any amount of gold worth all this effort? Without a single answer, Monterey sank back down into his barrel and stared at the dark insides for a long time, feeling each jump and jostle of the wagon as the horses faithfully kept walking toward their destination. Eventually, Monterey went back to sleep. He did not so much remember going back to sleep as he did waking up again and seeing the dim gray sky spread his joyless light across the top of his barrel. There was a study that I heard about years ago now, sometime back when I was in high school, about boundaries and how, in a way, boundaries make us more creative, though that seems kind of counterintuitive. The study was that there was a playground at a school and it was near a, a busy street, but the thought was we want these kids to explore and not feel like they are in prison. So let's remove the, the chain link fence that bordered the playground area so that it would feel more park-like and open, all those good things. And as soon as they did, all of the kids tended to not use the whole ground, but would kind of congregate sort of in the middle and use very little of the area that they had to play in. And they wondered what happened. And the best they could figure was that they were staying farther away without the fence. They were staying farther away from this uh, busy road. And once the fence went back in, they used up all of the land and, and played and had a good time. And um, I've sort of held on that in the back of my mind for a lot of things that when you can limit yourself to some degree, it does help you feel a little bit freer because you know where the edges are and you kind of know the the area that you can play in. And as we, I've talked about in, in past episodes, when it came to writing this book, I, I started writing down a road of, well, <clears throat> you know, just whatever comes to mind, I'll write it. And the story was a very meandering didn't really make sense kind of story and I was having a hard time finishing it and then I, I ran across this uh, method of outlining where you do enough pre-planning to the book then or yeah the book then you can kind of get lost in the weeds but you have this blueprint that you can go back to and can write the next chapter and you can imagine that back when you were sane and wrote all this down you knew what you were doing you kind of write the next chunk and eventually you end up with a story that makes sense but then I also knew that this was going to be a, a series. I really want this to be a, a three-story series. And uh, if I haven't mentioned it yet, the sequel is currently, at least for the, the Kindle, uh, it's available on a pre-order now. It's called Shell Game. Um, but I knew I wanted this to be a, a sequel. And so there was part of me that wanted some kind of foreshadowing of the whole series in this book. So the white stone or this pearl plays a big role in the whole series. But then this vision that Monterey has of the warriors and the swords and all that stuff, I have zero idea. Just so you know, I haven't even started the third book. Um, I have no idea 
uh, what this battle is, but somehow I've got to make it make sense because it's here and it's foreshadowing. And so in a way, I've kind of fenced myself in that that something about that scene needs to be in the last book so that if you should choose to reread the whole series, you go, oh, wait, that's in the last book and all those kinds of things. It, it reminds me of when uh, everybody that I know has a strong opinion about the um, first set of prequels to the Star Wars trilogy and whether or not they are worthwhile or well-made movies or any number of, of things that have come up about those. I really wanted to stick it out and make it to the end because I thought the biggest interesting thing to me was going to be the end of episode three. They were going to have to make a massive technology shift between 2000 and whatever year that came out in 1977. And they were going to have to figure out a way to dovetail the birth of Luke and Leia now that we know that Leia is a twin and all, all the things we're going to have to figure out. They were really going to have to marry those two up with an unknown story, which is Revenge of the Sith, with a very well-known story of A New Hope. And I find that fascinating. So I sort of did that to myself, not really thinking of Star Wars, but I've done that to myself. And, and you can hang with me and see how well it turns out once we uh, get to the end of the third book. Um, but I, I did want to talk about one small uh, memory that when I was re-listening to this came to mind. I don't think it had anything to do with why I wrote this, but there's the bit where Monterey takes the dirt clod off of the boot and chunks it at the window and it breaks and people think a gun went off. I was writing in a bus in England for some reason and uh, some neighborhood kid, I'm, you know, I'm sitting by a window of this bus and this neighborhood kid in England just I think was having a good time and chunked a rock at the bus and the window just all I know is I'm sitting there. It's not too long after I think England and the uh, Irish terrorist group, the IRA, they sort of made a peace agreement, but it hadn't been that long. And just all I see is this, I hear this loud noise and this the window next to me goes white because of the, sh of the shattering. Um, and I, I have no idea what's going on. I thought a gun has gone off and that I had to make sure I hadn't been shot or something. Um, I don't know why that, that memory came to mind, but it did of just the horrible fright that a rock against a window can cause. And uh, I don't know that I was thinking straight. So hopefully that those two cowboys, as they were trying to figure out who shot their window out uh, in uh, Buck's planning room, it maybe it took them a while before they realized that the glass was going the wrong way out the window, but who knows? Um, at, at some level, I had to move the story along. I couldn't keep uh, keep these guys trapped, so I had to get them out of town some way. But now we're in, um, uh, I'll just let the cat out of the bag. They're in Penny Canyon. They've made it all the way there. The horses knew the way uh, to there. And next week, we will discover uh, how things are in Penny Canyon and uh, what awaits our uh, heroes on the next leg of their journey. I'm so glad that you have been listening uh, to the podcast this week and hope that uh, you will tell someone else about the show and uh, let them know about the, the books and the website and all the things. There's the, the reader group and if they uh, hop in and join the reader group, then uh, I'll send a whole bunch of uh, other stories that can be read and be enjoyed. As I mentioned a little bit ago, you can pre-order the sequel to Showdown in the Yukon over at amazon.com the uh, kindle version 
is available for pre-sale. The paperback and the hardcover will be out in February, but you can get the the uh, Kindle on uh, pre-order right now. It's called Shell Game. It is a completely different genre from this. It's more of a hard-boiled detective, but it takes uh, the mysterious Pearl and we get to find out a little bit more about what's going on with the Pearl while our detective is trying to solve three uh, murders that have uh, hit a small Kansas town. So hope you uh, check that out. Hope you come back next week as we continue our journey through a showdown in the Yukon. And until then, I hope you have a happy Thanksgiving and I'll see you next time.